0: welcome to the pacey performance podcast today i'm speaking with coach and educator kelvin giles This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by VAL Performance, the team behind the Nordboard hamstring testing system. So the Nordboard is the fastest and easiest, most accurate way to measure hamstring strength. So with the Nordboard, you'll get the right information to make the right decisions at the right time. If you want to check them out, you can check them out at valperformance.com. This episode of the Pace of Performance podcast is sponsored by Train With Push, creators of the Push Band. So the pushband is the first scientifically validated uh, wearable device to provide objective insights into your performance in the gym. So using accelerometers and a gyroscope, the push band is able to use bar speed to regulate load and volume based on your ability in the gym on any given day. So you can use the push band to quickly establish uh, 1 RMs with submaximal load so you can plan with confidence. So the Pushband Portal also allows you to create programs before entering the gym uh, to make change on the fly depending on how you are performing on that given day. So you can customise everything from target velocity ranges to differentiating velocities for warm-up and creating working sets and supersets uh, for yourself or your athletes. So if you do want to know more about Train With Push and the Push Band, get yourself over to trainwithpush.com, they also got a great blog so you can catch up with some guest bloggers such as Maden Ivanovich and Dan Baker, so be sure to check them out at trainwithpush.com thanks for tuning in to episode 84 of the Pacey performance podcast so really excited again to bring you a fantastic guest one that i've been stalking for a while and got in touch with right at the start when i started the podcast because i really wanted to get him on and that's kelvin giles so humble guy absolute legend uh you love the chat i'm gonna get straight into it um, let me know what you think on Twitter, uh, on Facebook, um, and if you do enjoy the episode, uh, please feel free to to share the podcast um, and and let everyone know, uh, let everyone know your thoughts. So again, appreciate your support, uh, and I'll speak to you soon. So, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. So got uh, Kelvin Giles on the phone today, who I think had been stalking early doors to come on the podcast, but he was too busy. Uh, so really excited to get him on uh, onto the podcast tonight. So welcome to the podcast, Kelvin.
1: Thanks uh, for the invitation. Uh, it's uh, nice to, to talk with you. I, I, you have been in touch a few times, and I've always, like you say, I've always been too busy. But yeah, n- less busy now. So good.
0: Good. It's great Good. to get. It's great to get you on. I know we um, we spoke a little bit beforehand about your background. Do um, Just want to tell anyone that doesn't know who you are um, your kind of journey to to where you are now. I'll
1: be plenty out there. Don't know who I am. I'm <laughs> not one of the famous ones. There's some there's, there's some brilliant practitioners worldwide, and, and I'm certainly not one of them. But well, I started off as a as a PE teacher. Yeah. Uh, I trained at Maybury College, which is now closed um, in Staffordshire. Uh, back in uh, 1968, uh, I, I left there and I, I taught in Birmingham as a PE teacher and did what normal PE teachers did at that time. Did lots of coaching outside the, 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 the PE curriculum. And, and I started coaching when I was 21, 22 years of age. Fell in love with track and field athletics a long, long time ago and always wanted to be a national coach. And so I was I was brought up and mentored by... Frank Dick and Wilf Pache and uh, Bruce Longdon, Malcolm Arnold, Carl Johnson, the, the, the real uh, hotbed of, of British coaching talent uh, in, in the 70s and 80s. And I learned such a lot from them. And I was fortunate to be made national coach for the British athletics team for the Moscow Olympic Games. So it was my first uh, sojourn into international sport. And. Um, I was after about four years of, of coaching and being national coach can the Olympic Games in Moscow. Um, at that, just after that, I was asked by the Australians to go and be the first track and field coach at the Australian Institute of Sport. That had a shocking time in, in, in Montreal and in Moscow, and the government just stepped in and, and, and helped. I think all the athletes and the coaches finally turned to the government and said, look, you're sending us into the lion's den out there. We're not equipped. We're not prepared. You've got to support us and prepare us for the international arena with with coaching, with resources and these kind of things. And Malcolm Fraser, the then prime minister, um, felt strongly enough about it to start and start investing heavily uh, trying to put the uh, coaching, sports medicine, sports science and research and facilities all under the same roof in Canberra. And I was I was honoured enough to be the, the first truck and field coach there. Um, and, and I was there for five years and then then came across uh, rugby league. I'd only known rugby league in, in England, uh, the old Eddie Waring days and this. And I, I watched uh, my local team, the Canberra Raiders, a different world altogether in rugby league, fell in love with that sport, was asked to help them, help the Canberra Raiders uh, over three years towards their premiership title, their championships in, in 1989, then got headhunted to go and join the Brisbane Broncos uh, by Wayne Bennett, and I was the, the their first performance director for six years in in those early stages of the Brisbane Broncos where we won the championship in 92 and 93, and it started off that long journey. of But they're sort of the, the Manchester United of rugby league. Uh, that's how I view the Brisbane Broncos. And from there, it developed across a whole range of sports, uh, as a consul- what do you call it? A consultant, or just going in and brainstorming with great people. Uh, head of Elite Player Development for the Australian Rugby Union. Head of Strength and Conditioning for the Queensland Academy of Sport, and 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 all. That. And I came back to be the Head of Strength and Conditioning for the London Broncos back in London with Tony Curry, the head coach there. So that got me back home. Then back to Australia for, for other adventures. And then I think it was about 2007, uh, uh, London had won the Games bid, and I started, along with lots of other people, um, were asked by many uh, of the British organisations to come across and try and give them the the benefits of what we'd learned under the Institute of the Sports System. I mean, from the 90s or the late 80s, 90s onwards, Australia were really punching above their weight internationally. Uh, They'd found a way of putting all these things together. Uh, The UK started to copy that through the different institutes of sports. And, of course, having been down that pathway, I was asked to come back and try and help a lot of individuals and coach-athlete units and sports and national governing bodies. Uh, So in 2008, I I thought, rather than just retire, I thought, I'll come back home. There's so much for me to do here. And And I've just been here since 2008, meeting great people across all sorts of sports, from Olympic level down to development areas. And it's been brilliant. And, and at the end of this year, I'll um, uh, say September, I'll go back permanently to Brisbane to continue the same thing. So there you go. Mm-hmm. That's that's all the stuff I've been
0: doing. So what, what, has, what changed? I mean, I want to get on to the kind of um, the PE schools um, angle at the start. What changed from teaching back when you started in schools to what you've seen maybe since you've been back in England? In um, the work you've been doing, is it has it progressed? What 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 are the differences that you're seeing?
1: Well, all, all respect to those PE teachers out there that that find themselves in difficulty, but are trying their hardest to 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 react to the 21st century environment. Uh, I, I don't think PE as a, a an organised body has reacted well to the trials and tribulations of the 21st century. Uh, I, I don't think for one minute that a a competitive-based, competitive games-based competitive games PE curriculum is the way to go. I think it's failed for the last twenty odd years. Back when I was a PE teacher, when I was trained, and some people of my age would may remember this, we had a movement curriculum. Games was an offshoot of a fitness movement-based curriculum. And that grew out of the Second World War about preparing for the military, about calisthenics, about bodyweight exercises, of, of perspiration of work. And then we would then use some of that basic introduction to a range of, you know, educational gymnastics and formal gymnastics as the movement basis. We would then use those newfound and developed skills of movement, of physical literacy into a games environment. And that's the way that was the order of play back then in the in the fifty eight to, to sixty odd curriculum of physical education. And then somebody took the physical out of physical education about thirty <laughs> years ago. And it's never recovered since. And when you look at what um Sandercock and people are doing at Essex University and, and, and looking at the not just the, the skill levels of modern day young people, but their fitness levels. Their ability to be fit to be alive. Are falling dramatically. We have a very unhealthy uh, young generation. Um, in fact, there are, some people have said that this is going to be the first generation that doesn't live as long as its parents if it continues this sedentary existence. And unfortunately, physical education that that used to be that that one that one aspect of their lives that they could depend on that they would have regular physical education and it was physical uh, has has gone. We you know. 15, 16, it's a become it's become optional. Yet we face such a catastrophic level of a lack of health and well-being with our younger generations that I've been expecting physical education to change its mind on being a competitive games-based curriculum and get back to being a movement and fitness-based curriculum. That's right. And I think that's a difference. Uh, when you talk about people that need to have mechanical or movement efficiency and a metabolic efficiency, that those are the basic entitlements of every human being to enter adulthood. Those are exactly the same uh, constituent parts of, of a person's being that you need to go on a high performance journey as well. So either way, whether you just want well-being for our community or you want a high-performance journey, you're going to have to have mechanical movement efficiency and metabolic efficiency, a general healthy population, and we ain't got one at the moment. So th- th- that's the difference that I've been seeing. And, and of course, that, that sort of really gets uh, accentuated when I'm in these high-performance settings, and in the high-performance setting, you will get that next generation, the late teenager who has been identified as being talented, comes into a high-performance setting with the, the idea of uh, being in the next two to four years making the international arena in what they're doing. And we, have, we look at them, and we, we have to start all over again. We've got to build them from the ground up because somebody forgot to do it 10 years ago. So it, it, it's failing us at elite level and it's failing us at health and well-being level, the way we've approached physical literacy and physical well-being with our developing people. And I, we, we need to change it from a high-performance point of view or a, a well-being point of view. Somebody better change it
0: real quick. Mm-hmm. So from how you were educated as a, as a PE teacher, going down that kind of obviously a clear coaching route to what you see – PE teachers go through in 2016 or 2000, 2010 or whatever it may be. Are they geared and educated to tick the boxes that you've all just mentioned?
1: I, I don't think so. I see a bunch of scientists. Mm-hmm. I see a bunch of scientists and I I look into the curriculum and I go into, I mean, me and Andy Thompson up in Scotland decided to rewrite some of these athletic development components for uh, North Glasgow uh, College and Edinburgh Telford College and give them, you know, because when we saw what they were doing inside there, they were academics and they were scientists. And the investment in the laboratories and the equipment for gas analysis and force plates, you know, they're coming out and they can talk to me about the Krebs cycle and about force plates and the force time continuum. But they haven't got the skills to stand there and hold a conversation with a young athlete and, and engage them. You know, we were, we were taught how to teach I mean, the number of coach education courses that that we, we, we've changed in recent years—a small group of us around the world—we're all having a little go. No, he's, he's just moaning about it. We have to try and do something about it. So, for those of you in Scotland, if you want to go do is contact Scottish Athletics and look at the Athletic Development Course that has now been created up there to try and bridge the gap of all the things that have been forgotten uh, and not being done that we've been expecting PE to do. Well, if you're expecting PE to give us physical literacy, forget it, which means that clubs with the seven, eight, nine-year-olds coming in, they've got to be equipped to develop physical literacy before sports-specific stuff. Are they equipped? No, because coach education is all about technical and tactical. So really from a physical education point of view and the technical and tactical or the development of all the four pillars in, in, in coaching that we need, Coach education is not doing the job and teacher training is not doing the job. Uh, and, and the human movement studies are all science. Science, science, science. It's not, coaching is an art. The scientists will make me a better... Understanding science will make me a better artist. It's the artistry of being a coach that is the key. Sorry for all you scientists out there, but that, that's it. <laughs> I, I appoint people around the world, in I mean, all over the place, and... I don't appoint many PhDs. Um, PhDs like Dan Baker, who who earned his PhD by by presenting his data from training the Brisbane Broncos in strength. That was a very very worthwhile and long term PhD. Because here's a bloke that spent spent 99% of his time delivering. That's some of the best strength training you've ever seen for a, a high performance setting, and at the same time, slowly over, what, 10 or 15 years, gained his PhD. Now, that's a different scientist, as opposed to the people that apply for jobs in a high performance setting and have never coached in their life, but they've got an MSc and a PhD in, in, in sports science and wouldn't be able to stand up and hold a conversation with an athlete. That's unfortunately where we've gone Wrong in our um, in our education processes.
0: Mm-hmm. Sorry, so that's right, mate. That's fine. So, what does um, you mentioned? Obviously, the athletic development courses that you that you you've set up in, in Scotland. What does that What does that look like? Can you take us through a bit of a, a journey? What that What that may look like well, on it, the ground? It,
1: it revolves around a, a, a definition of physical literacy, and, and 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 it revolves around the fact that whatever sport you want to do running, jumping, throwing, kicking, catching, and striking, the locomotion, non-locomotion, and and manipulative skills that you need for whatever sport, have a foundation in what we call the foundation movements. No matter what you do, in a field and court sport, or whatever sport it's going to be, if you're on a bike, in a a boat, it doesn't matter. On a horse, it doesn't matter. You you will need to have uh, developed a movement vocabulary that is based upon the ability to squat, lunge, pull, push, brace, rotate, hinge, and land. Those, are, I believe, are the foundation movements. Uh, and, and we used to have a curriculum through physical education, and we used to have uh, spare time play that developed a wide and deep movement vocabulary of those foundation movements. Now, because we have a different lifestyle nowadays and the kids don't go out and play and physical education got lost in the wilderness a long time ago and we've got this anti-perspiration syndrome going through life, the kids don't have that basic, those foundation movements set in stone as they used to. And so somebody along the the way has got to put them. So this becomes the, the formation of... Uh, of this athletic development course. We try and give, give all the coaches, and it's, it's track and field have picked this up in Scotland. Scottish athletics are the first to do this, and it, it's quite brilliant. We what um, uh, Dan and Richie and, and uh, Mark Monroe have helped put together up there. It's taken us four years to do. Um, we want to, first of all, introduce all these coaches who have got their level one, level two, and level three uh, track and field coaching qualifications. Where they spent, you know, an hour on growth and development. They spent an hour on health and safety. Might have done a little bit on strength, maybe a lot on uh, VO2 and that kind of stuff. So they've got <laughs> some things going on, and um, and then they need to be they need to be taught how to teach and how to coach. And not much of that goes on because the majority of of the the content of their track and field education is technical and tactical. It's basically technical. It's all based upon how to get these kids prepared to compete as opposed to how to get them to be able to move, make them into great movers first. Then those great movers can become great athletes and then those great athletes can then choose the event structure that is best suited to them or where their heart and soul is to go in that order as opposed to when a nine-year-old turns up an athletics club, they are taught how to do sprint starts, and they're taught how to do the triple jump and the high jump, and they go through all these, and they learn the techniques, fine. But what about their ability to have, what about their mechanical efficiency? To squat, to lunge, to pull, to push, to brace, to rotate, to hinge, to land. All those things which are the formative aspects of everything they're going to do in that sport. And that's what the basis of this course is. So we introduce the philosophy. What are the foundation movements? Why do you need them? What what happens if you don't get them? What happens if you, when things go, well, that's how people get hurt. So we talk about injuries. What happens through the different maturation stages? What what happens to a 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11? What's the difference between a 9-year-old and a 16-year-old in all this? What about this this maturation? What about peak height velocity and peak weight velocity? What happens just before and just after puberty to the girls and to the boys? Why are the girls getting injured more than the boys? How can we do something about that? Shouldn't we start neuromuscular training development with the girls two years before the boys? They'll mature. To, and all this kind of stuff, to get it in the context. And, and the, the second level, the level two is to say, okay, well, We'll now teach you how to assess these foundation movements. And once you've assessed these foundation movements, whether you do it formally through assessments and tests, or whether you just look for it, then how do you coach it inside your athletic session? Remember, the kids turned up to be athletes, not in terms of gymnasts. So, how can we make? Well, what did your session look like if they are? If you want to teach them how to how to run, uh, what? What movement breaks are you going to put in that session to give them the ability to squat, lunge, push, pull, brace, rotate, hinge, and, and land, and so on and so forth? So now the the, the coaching session has taken a completely different look because we're not only teaching the athletic movements in there, the sport-specific movements, we're teaching the general movements as well, and that we've got resources we've had to develop, and so on. So it's a it's a it's a it starts up nice and wide of introducing what, how, why, and when and then it takes them on to getting a little bit more specific, and then it goes deeper inside those movement breaks that we might have inside a session, or it takes them deeper into the warm-up, which is a really good place to introduce some of this movement efficiency work, at the same time making sure that the, the development, the technical and the tactical elements are going on at the same time. So in, in other words, what we're trying to do is to, because there's a massive hole, a catastrophic lack of athletic development with our youngsters nowadays we've had to find a way of changing the way that we coach and and the way to do that is to change the content of the session and but to do that with you the the coach needs to understand and you need to win the arguments the background and the rationale of why is it important to have these four pillars in the session at the moment you got one technical what about the other stuff? Technical, tactical, physical and mental. So we're dealing with the physical development component in this after development course. And of course, we try and also develop that, that mental development, the behavioral development as well. So sorry, I've rambled a bit
0: there. But That's fine. The,
1: the, the course, it starts off general and gets very specific. And we, we've actually said to the UK Strength and Conditioning Association, we believe that this should be before they come to the UK SCA and get their level one in how to teach the clean <laughs> you know i mean come on then this day why don't you go through these four layers that we've developed of introducing total athletic development to start with and then finish up teaching them how to teach the clean to
0: get your level one certificate
1: uh, and we're just seeing if they're willing to to uh,
0: to have a look at this so sorry and how well and how well's that been received kelvin
1: uh, i have left that to Darren, uh, and uh, at the moment, we, we have presented it to them, and we haven't had a, re- as of today, we haven't had the reply back. I did, if I go back, when I first, uh, 2009, I came back across and got, got introduced to the UKSCA then, um, and two Australians were on the board, Narelle Sibty, who I'd worked with in Australia, and Phil Morland, and Phil's up in Scotland as the head of strength and conditioning and performance for the Scottish Institute of Sport at the moment and i would worked with him in Australia for a long time. They were on the board, and uh, that first year I presented uh, uh, at the UKSCA National Conference an hour on why. Why do you think we should all go back to developing this athletic development stuff, foundation movements? I presented that then um, and then chipped away with the UKSCA to say, look, you can have this course if you want. I've already written it. You can have it as as a level one. You can bolt it on. You can do what you like. And I never got any any response from that at the end of the day. I, nothing nothing came of it at all so I, I realized that the UK SCA back then two thousand eight to two thousand and eleven were weren't interested um, but other groups were and Scottish athletics just jumped all over it and it's because of these two guys that they were they were really happy because they they recognised what they were missing with their coaches, where they go out as national development coaches coaching development officers and meet the coaches in the field and look at the sessions that the coaches are delivering, they could see that, that the reason why the coaches were only de- delivering technical and tactical stuff to the kids was that's all they'd ever been taught. And then so we, we did a few workshops in Scotland and all the coaches said, hey, we want to do some of that. Can you teach me how to do that? And we said, well, hasn't anybody taught you that? Said, well, no, it's not in the curriculum. So the athletic development curriculum is now, to me, alive and well in its formative stages, being operated through the Scottish Institute, uh, Scottish Athletics up in Scotland. Um, we, we've got that. Um, I still own the intellectual property on all that. And I just keep saying to all the national governing bodies, do you want it? <laughs> you can have it. <laughs> We're just going to teach your staff to be able to deliver it. So, you know, I'll come and do one. Then we copy them. I'll spend a few weeks upskilling these people. That's what we've done in Scotland. We've got, you know, several people up in Scotland now can deliver this course. You know, they've shadowed me all all the way through it for a time. And and they're they're brilliant young people. I'm too old to be doing all this stuff. (laughs) So this next generation, so, so that's the only proviso we're saying to organizations, look, if you're going to do this, you do it properly. Don't just don't just pretend and throw this at a coach. We've got to give the coaches a, a chance to have a wonderful adventure and journey with this to enhance their education. Mm-hmm. And you win some and you lose some.
0: Mm-hmm. So there's a couple of points that I'd, I'd just written down to uh, to delve a little bit deeper into. During your last um, last answer was firstly uh, assessing the foundational movements. Do you just yeah. want to talk to us about that journey and how that's kind of developed and and what it may look like.
1: Well, if you go back to the 90s when I was at the Broncos, at the Brisbane Broncos, and, uh, I mean, that was a, that was a formidable team back in 92, 93. Well, I think you can actually go onto YouTube and watch the 92 and 93 grand finals in, in, in rugby league and just see this was a good, this was a good side. But it took us, uh, took me and Wayne, we worked out the other day 18 months to, to get them to adapt to the way things had to go. So it, it, it took a long time. Now, while we were doing that, obviously, we, we also had a talent development process going on at the Broncos, led by the great Cyril Connell, who was this ex-minister uh, um, uh, for education for Queensland. Brilliant guy. He, he, he was one of those those incredible people, um, well, 20 years older than me and Wayne, who... Just could recognize talent for some reason. And, and he, he never missed so that the, the great names of Australian Rugby League back in the 90s and, and 2000s were all people he recognized. So we would get these 15 and 16 year olds that we were, we were interested in. And they would, they would come down from their different parts of Queensland, you know, a thousand miles away. Um, and come and spend a few days with us as we tried to, to, to 15, 16, 17, 18 is to help them through that transition. Uh, while they were back in their hometowns with their home coaches, in, in, going through their schooling, and and when they would arrive then at 17 and 18 years of age to Brisbane and go into jobs, that was some of them were still doing work at those. We didn't have full time players at that, that stage, and they would finally move from the outback and come down to Brisbane. We were saying, "Blimey, they've changed," you know. We, we, it, it wasn't they haven't developed as we thought. We expected something more over the last three years. We expected that progression to be linear and we sat back and it didn't take us long to realise to say well but the thing is they're in the hands of somebody who's just just given his heart and soul he may have his level one rugby league coaching but they know nothing about the things that this kid's going to face when he comes into the, the Broncos first team operation or the under 21 operation there and what are the things that we've got to teach them? Well, from my point of view, from the physical development point of view, we had to, this is a running game. <laughs> and every all the coaches I meet around the world, uh, well, lots of them, And whenever I took, they can always tell me how fast their athletes have got to run or how far they've got to run. You know, you go down to a just an athletics club last week here in Birmingham. Well, what are you doing for the, the, the speed session tonight? You ask the question. Uh, and they go, oh, I'm doing um, three sets of three times flying 30. Okay. <laughs> so they know, they know how far and they know how fast. But has anybody ever taught the kids how to run? No, it's nice how far and how fast until the how. Can, how do we teach them to run? And we had to do that back in the 90s. We, we believed at the rugby league that speed was going to be king and we did great, really resilient running mechanics. Well, these people back in the bush Uh, where these kids were from, had no understanding of this. And so we recognize then, well, maybe from the age of 15 to 18, we need to go back out to their home clubs and support that coach, support the parents to understand their running mechanics, their strength development, their stability development, their flexibility development, their nutritional development, their hydration development, all those things that they would have to be well armed with. And so we found ourselves back in those days, Holly Frail was the was our, our nutritionist. We videoed her shopping, we videoed her cooking the right foodstuffs. And so, Mum, back home with the 15, 16 year old potential Brisbane Bronco for the future, understood a bit more about nutrition. Then I had to, then I, I got them, we had a videotape in them days, remember, folks? We don't, we don't just have found computers back then. <laughs> Still pencil and paper. (laughs) And we would, I video. When you get here, you're going to have to be able to squat and to lunge and to pull and to push and to brace and to rotate and to hinge and to land. These are the, I already was aware of that way back then because every athlete needs to do those things. So I filmed all those things and filmed some of the Broncos doing them and progressing them. And every one of these kids got this video and we, and we gave them three copies one for them, one for the parents, and one for their coach. And we sent that out, and we. So it was way back there that we recognised that, that there could be some foundation movements to all this. Let me jump you forward to the Queensland Academy of Sport, uh, two thousand, and I was there two thousand and two it, to it, two thousand and five, and it's it's won sixty five percent of all Australia's Olympic medals from the Queensland Academy of Sport. This is a special place, and and I was I was really lucky in the staff that I could get. And, and some of your colleagues out there might know the names of people like Lachlan Penfold, Dean Benton, Suki Hobson, uh, Scott Dickinson, uh, Chris Gaviglio, uh, and, uh, all holding down some of the world's best positions now. Like Lachlan is at, uh, the San Francisco NBA team. Uh, Suki and M- Mike Davy are at the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, Dean Benton's back We've been with the Leicester Tigers He's been with Australian Rugby Union He's with the Melbourne Storm And he's about to make another gigantic step And uh, influence the Northern Hemisphere uh, Johnny Pryor with with, with, with the, um, the the Japanese rugby team These were the guys that I had at my disposal As, as members of staff I mean, just the A-team So I was really lucky you know, To be able to have met these young people When they were in there Lachlan was 20 when I first met him, and, and, and to watch them and manage to work with them in this in this Queensland Academy. So we get these, um, for example, we get the, these under 15, under 16 girls coming in as being the best netball players. And their our job was to turn them into netball players, not just for Australia, but for the Super League netball teams that play in Australia. Now, Australia are pretty good at netball that um, they really are pretty good. And so we were playing our role from the Queensland group and the Queensland Firebirds were our uh, local team. Uh, and our job was to take them from being this great potential to being international athletes if we could. And we looked at them and we would do a screening of movements and we'd screen, well, let's, can you squat? What's a squat? Can you <laughs> lunge? What's a lunge? Certainly can't pull and push. They could never handle their body weights. Um, lack of flexibility, lack of balance and coordination, we were saying who's supposed to be doing this and I've got lots of film of them doing all these these foundation movements just in front of us, can you squat with your body, put your hands behind your head now squat down and put your bum on your heels and stand back up again that no, couldn't do it, lunge forward and back if you can't, now they fall over <laughs> push up, not a chance, pull up, no chance, no, <laughs> chance. can you stabilise, can you get into a plank and just hold that for 30 No, I can't even hold it for anything Yet these were the best young female athletes for netball that we'd ever seen, and they could not do these foundations. And we realized that if we started increasing, as as we would have to, the fr- intensity, the frequency, and the density of their training to make them go down this next part of their journey in the transition from being a good-looking potential junior to an international, then we're going to have to crank things up. And we'd break them. They just did not have the physical literacy, the capability, the resilience, the mechanical efficiency, consistency, and resilience to tolerate any of that. So, what did we have to do? So, to say to the coach, sorry, we're going to have to take him back to the beginning because somebody forgot to do this. Uh, and we'd go out to their training in their local clubs and see these 14 or 15-year-olds who can't squat or lunge or push or pull or brace or any of these things well, uh, not need, can't, have, can't produce and reduce and stabilise force. And we've got some idiot strength and conditioning coach making them do hopping and bounding plyometrics up and down the court all night. And you say, well, why are you doing that? Oh, because they need more power and agility on the on the court to win the under-15 championship. And we're saying, but son, you're going to break them. They can't can't single leg squat. They can't lunge. They can't squat. They can't pull. They can't lunge and rotate. They can't lunge and bend. They can't do these things in a controlled environment. What the hell are you doing? You're going to break them. And, of course, this is where we see all these girls, 14, 15, are suffering five times ACL ruptures than the the boys are. You start to piece it together. So... Sorry, I know i rambled a bit, but the Broncos and this transition from the the, being a potential to the senior ranks demands that you have absolute mechanical efficiency in squat, lunge, push, pull, brace, rotate, hinge and land. Uh, And you've got to be able to do that uh, in every plane, in every direction, every speed, every amplitude against every force. All of those. Now, when you multiply all that together, now you get an idea where a movement vocabulary is. Now you've got a chance whether to take them on to running mechanics, jumping mechanics, passing, field and court sports. You need the movement vocabulary, and so it was quite simple to be able to find a way of assessing this. And and I, I mean, there's, there's loads of ways of assessing this. I I just choose five points. And you got to score five out of five. Your grandma should be able to do it. <laughs> there are five things you should do. You should be able to keep your heels down. You should have ankle, knees, and hips lined up so that you don't have knock knees. You should have your, your trunk. When you get down the bottom, the trunk should be parallel to the shins. Uh, and you should have equal stance between both legs. I mean, there, there are five things that you do, and, that you, and that's what we were doing. So we had a, because we were in a, an, an organized environment, we had, we went out and taught lots of practitioners how to do this physical competence assessment. And I wrote that book on it. I, I put it all into a book and um, said, okay, that's what we'll do. And we taught lots of practitioners to do that. We could fetch them in and they could assess them in, you know, 10 minutes across whatever we wanted to find out. And, and we, we we, were, we put it that a score of five per movement is normal. And we've got physios involved, and we got sports science involved. We said, look, I'm not choosing whether this is normal or not. You help me, guys. And guys like Mike Dalgleish and, and Victor Popov, the, the, the creme de la creme of, of Australian uh, physiotherapy, would say, yeah, we reckon it should look like that. These movements should look like this. And, yeah, that's a five, that's a four, and that's how you lose a mark. And we, so we've got it really you know, tied up pretty tight. So we've got the physical competence assessment. And, and off we went. And we also said to coaches, look, if you haven't got the time or the energy to do it formally, at least do it informally. So you get the manual. This is what a squat should look like. This is what a lunge should look like. Do it in the warm-up. And if your kids can't do it, well, it gives you the answer straight away. You better start doing it as part of the warm-up or as a movement break. You better teach these kids how to squat, lunge, pull, push, brakes, rotate and hinge and land if you found out that they've got poor scores. And we've been doing tons of this in the UK and tons of this in Australia. And when we first start testing, we're getting scores of 2.5 out of 5 across 16, 18 movements or whatever the number of movements you do. Five is normal. Four is terrible. Three is catastrophic. So we're getting kids of 2.9-year-olds at a a school. in Stephen is at primary school scoring 1.5 out of 5 on basic foundation movements. Oh, so,
0: anyway. <laughs> so how many schools have you um, delivered this in Kelvin?
1: Oh, there was. Well, I was living at Stevens at my sister's. Uh, I'm in Birmingham at the moment, and we, we got got uh, campus, We got some prim- about five primary schools down there. bought into this, a couple of secondary schools. Uh, a lot more in the states because I've, I've managed working with Vern Gambetta closely. We've managed to get a lot more people in the states to take this up. Um, so. I couldn't tell you how many sports, because that many people have, have, have actually bought the manual uh, and all the things that are laid to measure it, um, that, that it could be happening in all sorts of places. Then again, it might not be.
0: <laughs> so where can I mean, uh, just it just could be... just be collecting
1: dust. <laughs> <laughs> so what we've got, if you go back to the Scottish athletics one, they've now got a competence journey that the athletes have got to follow. So no longer... Can you just follow by, well, how fast can you run the 100 metres as being the way that you progress along the, the journey toward being a senior athlete? You've now got to take a movement competence with you, and they've developed that, that entire thing. That So by the age of uh, 10, we expect the the following competencies to be scored. You must score five in the following movements, and then the next movements develop by the age of 12, and then 14, then 16, and then 18, and it doesn't stop. Physical, no great coaches are very far from the foundational movements. Look, look at
0: them.
1: Not many great coaches are, are working far from the basics, and these basic movements have got to be kept on being revisited.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is what you mean when you say about an right to progress, going through uh, each yeah, concept.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, very often, you know, the, the uh, we, we, we progress because it's um, we think it's time to. We progress because the fixture list tells us to. We progress because selection or the season's coming on to us now. Well, we but no, no, they've got to earn the right to progress. I mean, if you can't squat and score five out of five, and of course, all these 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 movement competencies are progressive. So we start off with a squat where the hands are ahead, and we have a squat with the hands behind the neck. Then we have an overhead squat, and then we have a squat against the resistance. So it's a it, the squat itself goes on a journey. Um, Well, if you can't score five out of five on a basic squat, why am I going to load it? If you can't lunge correctly without losing balance, lunge forward and back, transfer weight from one leg to the other, why am I going to load it? Why am I going to load a poor movement? Now, you've got to get the movement right before we load it, and then we're going to start by loading it with a – I'm going to load it with speed. Then I'm going to load it with volume. Then I'm going to load it with – uh, uh, amplitude short squats and very deep squats so I've got all these ways of progressing we, we, we often think that the two tools that we've got as coaches for progression are a volume and b external load nonsense we've got far more tools in our toolbox to be able to progress and and to me I'd rather progress I know I've got to I know I've got to progress in terms of force. I know I've got to do that. You want to run fast? You better be able to produce some force. I know that. I know about maximal strength. I know about rate of force development. I know about peak power. I know, know that's part of the journey, inexorably a part of the journey. But before I start flirting at that end of it, I'm going to progress them with speed and amplitude and complexity. I want them to have that, that ability to be in complete control of their body parts under any circumstance before I start squeezing it through external load or volume, etc. So, to me, that's the journey we have to go on. Physical literacy through this movement efficiency to start with, and then earn the right to progress those along their journeys greater volume, greater speed, greater external resistance, greater power, whatever and also to progress and, and, and take those into a sports-specific setting.
0: Mm-hmm. So just before I forget, where can people get the book that you've mentioned a couple of times? Oh, well, it sounds a bit posh, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> I've got a website. <laughs> I have no idea how it works. And on the website, uh, we've got uh, – there's three books I've written uh, over the And, and don't look – it sounds a bit posh that I've written three books, but I wrote them myself, and I don't get them through – I get them published, and I print them myself, basically. Through, through lulu so you can go on there you can see there's four books on there i think and you can buy them directly through lulu uh, online and there's lots of uh, the special gauges we've got and we've got the, the manuals are there so everything you need to go and do this formal assessment is actually on the website and that's, and that's movementdynamics.com perfect so I, sound, I sound like a salesman <laughs>
0: <you>? <laughs> just a couple of uh, last things so i put it on as you know i put it on twitter and um and a couple of people have got back to me. So, just two two last things. Uh, one from James Baker, which was, um, how do you make the basics that you've mentioned uh, constantly through through the chat uh, engaging for younger age groups, as it'll differ across, you know, what from a seven year old to a sixteen year old.
1: By really sound pedagogy, by sound teaching, by understanding learning how it's supposed to go on. Uh, and it, it sounds very try to say it's gotta be fun. Well, if we if the only tool that we've got in our toolbox is to tell the kids what to do by these narrow drills, robotic drills, then it's gonna be more difficult to keep their attention. So again we've gotta look at the we've got to look at the continuum of maturation. If they're seven, eight, and nine year old they got the attention span of a gnat. So, <laughs> The last thing you want to do is start talking to them. You just say, right, do this, do this, do this, follow the leader. A quick demonstration, you have a try, you have a try. You'll learn it eventually. You won't learn it tonight maybe, but in the next few weeks you will. So straight away you've dealt with their expectations. You haven't said, look, the great soccer players can all do <coughs> this. I want you to do it now because they'll no. You The other thing is, Can you give them time to experiment with it and to to get it wrong? So they've got to try and find the solution themselves. So again, another tool in your toolbox is it's understanding this implicit to explicit learning environment. Uh, They'll find it far more encouraging if you can, A, first of all, give them enough guidance to do things safely and to do things that resemble what's got to be going on. But then give them plenty of time to to experiment with it and to find their own solution. To give them their own autonomy in this, because we know that that's what makes them want to come back again than just being turned into robots. So work out how you talk to them with the expectation level. Work out that they something that they can actually do that that, that's that's safe enough to. It is an example of teaching the kids how to throw. All right. And this is not from me. This is from, from the, the, a friend of mine in, in the state, from Greg Thompson. He deals he, he in primary school teachers. So how is he going to get the kids? All, they all want to be baseball players in the state. So he's going to introduce throwing to them at the age of five and six. He's a primary school teacher. So, so what's he going to do? So what he did he did He got the nice implement, those nice soft balls with a little bit of weight to them, and it wouldn't matter if they hit you on the head. They weren't going to hurt. And he put a line on the wall. Uh, halfway up the wall, and the kid stood within what? Four paces of the wall, and he said, kids, all I want you to do is hit the wall above the line. Anyway, I don't care, any way you like. But the only rule is this, you've got to pick your own ball up afterwards. And so they just threw it, and it looked, it, it looked terrible. We, we, he knew what he wanted it to look like. Eventually, with them um, one foot in front of the other, turning the hips to the side, driving the right hand side, leaving the elbow late, and all that stuff. But he di- he didn't want to say it. He just said, "Great, everybody, try again." But this time, come and step back three more paces. Now they're further away from the wall. Now he hasn't said anything. He hasn't turned them into robots. He hasn't given them these this checklist of. 10 things you've got to do to throw well and and stand there and talk to them. These kids have just got to keep on throwing. But the thing was, by coming three feet from the wall, some of them couldn't get the ball over the line. And you could see them, and you watched them scratch their heads. (laughs) Hey, I couldn't get over the line. And he just said, have another try. If you didn't get the ball over the line, try something different. That was the only coaching thing he said. And the kids experimented and they began to copy each other and look up the wall. And what Greg would do, he'd see one of the kids doing it properly where instead of facing square onto the wall, this kid had taken a step and that step one foot in front of the other. He said, Okay, Jimmy, everybody stop. Let's watch Jimmy throw. And Jimmy threw it with one foot in front of the other, not square on. And the kids, that great, that great mimics, they started copying. And they started doing that. They started experimenting. Greg didn't give them one coaching point. By the end of the session, he had most kids satisfying the throwing rubric. But he didn't have to say a great deal. He just gave them. It was was the art of coaching, expectations, the support he gave them, the feedback he gave them, and all those things. They become the keys that allow people, the kids, to want to come back next week. And I'm telling you, they don't like coming back next week if all you've done is talk to them all night, uh, you know, St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, <laughs> and you've not let them have any physical activity and let them experiment. And, you know, failure is an option with a developing athlete. If they get it wrong, let it, okay, sort it out. I'm not going to tell you, no, have another go, have another go. Watch him, have another go, have another go. And, and try and have it as guided discovery rather than this, this, this the tragedy of drill after drill after drill after real what, read what, um, uh, Stu Armstrong's been saying. He, he, he's Twitter's out there. He's done some brilliant stuff on, on, on the, the, the wrong use of drills nowadays. So understanding where they are in this continuum you know with, with the 16 year old they can rationalize a bit now they need a bit more time you could actually start talking with them and sharing with them and asking them what they think and that engages them so you, you understanding what you're dealing with, understanding you haven't got to say too much, that the, the art of your coaching is the thing that's going to make it enjoyable and get them to turn back. I, I, I can't be any more sort of, I can't give you the specifics of that. Mm-hmm. It's all, all to do with enjoyment. It's all to do with the quality of your coaching.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's a great example. Uh, thanks for sharing that. That's great. Um, so last but not least, uh, you'll like this one, I think. Uh, <laughs> working with old school coaches and implementing uh, best athletic development practice. Another Twitter um, one.
1: Well, I, I've, I've gone through my life knowing that, that there's always somebody else that knows a lot more than me, but not not the not the, not the scientific knowledge stuff. I mean, I, I, I can remember when I was at the Australian Rugby Union and they got all the young guns in there and, and, and coming in and, and we had to listen to uh, some of the new stuff on um, RPEs. And I think RPEs are a great tool to use. I mean, I use a lot of, I, I use GPS, I'll use the, the ballistic measurement stuff, I'll use the force plates. I, I mean, I, I use it all. It, it, it's used, you can use it daily if you want in certain aspects. Hardly when you're coaching out there in, in the freezing cold in the middle of Birmingham somewhere where <laughs> I'm afraid you ain't got a force plate um, or you haven't got a, you, you can't do gas analysis. Well, you, you are going to be left with the tools of the trade that you've got to do. So, I think the first thing to everybody at least is to choose who you're going to listen to. I guess the first thing is to have a really good bullshit monitor because the Internet, although it's a wonderful place to have, it's also a place where there are some snake oil salesmen out there. Mm-hmm. You've got to choose carefully who you are going to be mentored by. My mentors, um, are, some of them are still alive. But you know, you know, my mentors are now, because Will Page died and I thought he was the best I've ever come across. Um, Bruce Longdon has died now and, and, lots of them are retiring. And, but my mentors are all the young people that I've worked with and appointed and, and, and helped them, been with them through their careers. If I want to, if I want to know something about ACL injury recovery, I'll go to Bill Knowles or Suki Hobson. You know, and I've known them for years from when they were tiny tops and they're growing up. If I want to look at running mechanics for field and court sports, I want to, without a doubt, I'm going to go to Dean Benton and Johnny Pryor tomorrow. So I think I've, I've, I've made less mistakes now. I'm choosing the people I'm going to listen to. From a sports medicine point of view, None better than Andy Franklin Miller uh, working out of Dublin. Um, so I think that... that have a, a good bullshit monitor, and to go and find out who are the people that are are, are telling you what is appropriate, and, and and just don't fall for the snake horse salesman that are trying to sell you something. Uh, as Steve Merlin, my mate, said, if somebody comes along to you and says, "Look, I got the answer, I got the program, this is it, this is this is the one and only," go for your gun. <laughs> so yeah, so. As Vern says a lot, what was old is new again. I haven't learned anything new, I don't think, in the last twenty years. I, I've come across like if you look at skill acquisition stuff now. I was brought up on on Barbara Knapp. Uh, Go back and and that got me working back in the sixties of understanding how how people learn things, uh, Piaget's learning principles. So, you know, old farts like me, we, we, we understand about learning. Where research has gone in in neuroscience nowadays, understanding brain plasticity, that's a new one for me. That's really helped me understand about return to play from injury a lot more understanding about brain plasticity because that's where research has gone. But some of the basic stuff that you're going to need of how to put a program together, where to stand, what to say, what not to say, how to progress things, uh, I think they've already been done before, and there's some great practitioners out there. You've got to choose which people you speak to, and I'm telling you, in the UK, I've come across a whole host of. There's some really good, talented people over here.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think that's a, a good place to uh, to finish up, and just thank you for your time. But apart- I'm, I'm sorry, I've rambled. No, 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 not at all, not excited. at all, Kelvin. It's uh, all good. So, apart from your website, where can people keep in touch with what you've got going on?
1: Uh, email me. I'm at kbgiles at gmail dot mm-hmm. um, uh, I, I do I do that Twitter stuff, <laughs> and I think that's an, at at kbgiles. Yeah, I've yeah, that. I think that's I think, true. I, I go on there and look at the people I follow. If you if you're not sure who people that have got good common sense, look at the people I follow. So at least it's it's my just my narrow opinion on who's telling me the truth out there. <laughs> and I'm not saying I've got everybody, I'm only following about 60 people, um, but I, I, can, I know I can trust them.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, I, I know I can trust them, whether it's to do with education or to do with speed development or strength development or, or whatever. I mean, th- that's my network that I can deal with. So uh, so worldwidewebmovementdynamics.com if you want any of the books, uh, and then uh, kbgiles at gmail.com. Or at KB Giles or whatever it is on Twitter.
0: Perfect. Sounds good, doesn't it? No, yeah, you reeled that off nicely. I like that. Going <laughs> second nature now. Oh no. It's
1: modern <laughs> technology. I've even got a smartphone.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Just one one very last thing, promise. Um, you met obviously uh, this weekend gone with all the Leicester City um shenanigans and we're in the league you made a really interesting comment after all the uh, i'll put you on the spot here by the way after all the kind of furor around the bbc doing the sports science um kind of interviews and things and and people kicking up a fuss and i saw on bbc news they were they were fascinated because um somebody said they're doing ice baths ice which was, baths and juice, which was unbelievable like that? to the to the dude who does the sport on the bbc um but you've made a couple of interesting comments just. Um, because of the, the furore on the, the sports science side of things. But I just want to give your kind of opinion on, maybe it's a 2016 thing, uh, again, killing everyone on Twitter, but just how these kind of things get built up and, and your interpretation of how this is all seen in the public in well, eye. The, well, the, I, I,
1: I, I, I'll go back a few years now. I'll go back to what Winston Churchill said, and that is that science should be on tap <laughs> and not on top. Mm-hmm. Now, when I got to the Queensland Academy of Sport, we found that the the uh, the eight or nine strength and conditioning coaches who spent fifty percent of the coaching time with the athletes were being paid a quarter of what the sports scientists were being paid. Because this is what happened in Australia. Australia lost their way, I think, by getting the the decision makers were scientists and not coaches. Uh, and, and I'm a great believer in the coaching fraternity, and I'm a great believer in understanding science, and I, I don't think any of the programs that I ever wrote uh, or, or continue to write today are not based on sound scientific principles. But it, I have to deliver it with the, the – the, the, and I, I've got to understand the human element of how to deliver it, not just the, uh, the, the, the gas analysis or the force plates or the force time continuum. That's not going to help me with the athletes. It's going to help me not make a mistake in prescription, but it's not going to help me. And, and I think when I read that, that the scientists had, had started bamboozling everybody out there or whoever it was was writing about, what about the other 19 <laughs> Premier League teams that were doing ice baths and they were drinking the beetroot and they were, they were having three days off, which is the stock standard way that guys like Ray Verhagen is, is recommending. <laughs> um, uh, they were all doing that. And they all had degrees of failure. In fact, three of them got really <laughs> I mean I have done a lot of um operational reviews in the Premier League, in the Premier League of rugby, rugby league and, and in and in football. Uh, and I've been deep inside some of these operations and and I've come across some quite brilliant practitioners uh who if they were only given the opportunity uh to express their thoughts correctly. Uh, in the, the balance of training and the content of training and, and, and the, the balance between work and rest. Uh, unfortunately, the, the coaching fraternity, uh, and the majority are from uh, ex-players, and they did it their way 15, 20 years ago. It may have been at Leicester that Ranieri, Ranieri was a listener and, and, and took on board what sports medicine was saying, sports science was saying, and fitness coaches were saying about how we should try and balance training. It, I mean, I'm a great believer in what Ray Verhagen writes about uh, about training. I do understand about quality versus quantity. But when I go around to the, the uh, all the, the Premier League clubs that I've been to, I don't see that in practice. I, I, I still see an overtraining environment and a poor balance so I'm not sure who's listening to who here. So I didn't want to I, I, I had my say and I didn't want people to think, oh, this is the this is about science. Let's go on a, I didn't want the chairman to start appointing scientists. I want the chairman to appoint great teachers. That's where I think that if you go down that pathway, great teachers, great coaching pedagogy has got to be the 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 the, the, the linchpin of everything that's gone on, not the science, but I'm not ignoring science.
0: Mm-hmm. Great uh, little summing up there. So, yeah, so I'll, I'll feel, finish it there. I've kept you for just under an hour. And. I've been talk. getting on my high horse, but it's been lovely talking to you. It has, Kelvin. Yeah, really appreciate your time, mate. Thanks a lot.
1: Thanks, right, mate.
0: I'll speak to you soon. See you, mate. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Just before I let you go, I want to say a massive thank you to uh, Kelvin Giles for coming on the podcast. Uh, and fit me into his schedule of packing and moving his family back over to Brisbane. Um, Another massive thank you to Val Performance, uh, makes the Nordboard, and Train with Push, the team behind the Push band. So thanks again for your support. Let me know what you think of the episode, and I'll see you in episode 85.